Okay. I'd like to start with a few remarks about the general approach we're going to take today. Um, there's a passage in the canon where the Buddha says that everything, all dhammas, which means all phenomena, all things that are sensed through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, are rooted in desire. Um, which means that everything you experience is filtered through the purpose, whatever the desire happens to be. Um, this is reflected in the first couple of verses in the Dhammapada, where he says that all things are made by the mind, all things are originated by the mind. Everything is forerun by the mind. And in the Buddha, in, in saying that, is basically taking an anti-materialistic approach to the question of suffering or the question of experience in general. In other words, you can't explain everything by just physical laws. In fact, it's the movements of the mind, it's the activities of the mind that actually explain all of your experience. Um, and because everything is rooted in desire, that means our, our experience is purposeful. We have purposes with, that we pursue. Um, this comes from the experience of suffering itself. As I would have said, our initial experience of suffering is one, bewilderment. Why is this happening? What is this? And the second is a search for a way out. And particularly, he says, we we begin to formulate our search for a way out by asking, who knows a way out? We're looking for some help from somebody else. Um, and since that search is often motivated by bewilderment, we often look at the wrong people, get the wrong advice. And as a result, we, even though we desire happiness, we end up creating more suffering for ourselves. So we have, in order to solve the problem of suffering, we have to look back at our purposes and what it is, how it is that our purposes shape our experience to see how we can redo our purposes, change them around. In the Buddha's explanation of suffering, sensory contact comes only about halfway through. In other words, it doesn't start with sensory contact. There's, the mo mind is motivated. It's basically f shaping itself, so it's priming itself, if it's priming itself in ignorance, when it meets up with sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations, it's already primed to suffer from them. So it's not that they make us suffer. The suffering actually comes from the activity of mind leading up to sensory contact. And one of the main factors leading up to that is what the Buddha calls fabrication. There are three kinds of fabrication. There's bodily fabrication, the way you breathe. There's verbal fabrication, which is technically directed thought and evaluation. It's basically the way you talk to yourself. And then the third is mental fabrication, which are feelings and perceptions. And all of these things have a purpose to them. In fact, there's one passage in Sangyutta 2279 where he talks about the, re the relationship of fabrication to all the other aggregates, and we'll get into what aggregates are in, in later this morning. But he says, why do, we f okay, why do we call them fabrications? Because they fabricate fabricated things. What do they fabricate as a fabricated thing? It says, for the sake of formness, they fabricate form as a fabricated thing. For the sake of feelingness, for the sake of perception, hood, for the sake of fabrication-hood, for the sake of, con sake of con consciousness-hood, they fabricate fabricated experience. Now why it's called feelingness, the Buddha doesn't explain. But the important thing is it is that for the sake of. We have purposes in the way we approach things. This is often missed in that translation of that passage. The commentary says it simply means they fabricate form as form, feeling as feeling misses the idea that, okay, there's a purpose behind all this. We're looking for something. We're, we're looking for tools to put into our suffering, to make ourselves happy. 
And our tools, our sense of tools, um, often will shape how we approach experience. We can see this in the way our perceptions, say from people from different cultures, will perceive something from another culture and see, well, this fits in with my purposes, even though the original purpose was not that, not that at all. An excellent example is when Laotian refugees came to America and they were moved into Minneapolis, of all places. I mean, if you want to make a Laotian suffer, you put them up in Minneapolis. <laughs> and they looked out behind their homes, and there were clotheslines. Now, this reminded them immediately of what you had lines like that for in Laos, which was to hang up fish to dry them. <laughs> so you can imagine what the, how the neighbors reacted. <laughs> but you know, we do the same sort of thing. When uh, John Sawat was teaching in retreat at IMS, um, they were bringing in food from the, from, the, from the kitchen one day, and one day the food, the food containers were spittoons. And these were Thai spittoons. Someone had gone over to Thailand and bought some spittoons, and then now they're using them as serving dishes in IMS. And we had a couple of Thai people on the retreat, and they admitted how it, it required a real force of you know, will to eat food out of a spittoon. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we see things and we immediately think of their uses. What can this use? What use is this for us? Um, and so, in the same way, we have raw materials that are coming in from our past actions, basically, and from those raw materials, based on our desires, we are going to fashion our experience. This is what that passion passage means. We take the potential for a feeling, we take the potential for a perception, and then we turn into a feeling or perception we feel that we can use. Um, all too often this is done subconsciously, unconsciously, out of ignorance, and so we end up creating problems for ourselves. But this intention that we have in the present moment to shape things, that's our karma, right, in the present moment. So we're taking the results of past karma and shaping them into our present experience through our, our present karma, which is why karma is so complex. And this is also why we focus on the present moment in meditation, which is to see how are we shaping things. What are our intentions? Are we doing it well? We want to find happiness out of things, but then the question is, are we actually creating suffering? So when we have present karma in the shape of our intentions and fabrications, these come prior to our experience of contact. The contact actually is the input from past karma. So we actually experience, in the present moment, our intentions, our fabrications, prior to the things coming in. And we're already primed to use these things as we, as we see fit. So if this, if this is done through ignorance, as I say, we prime ourselves to suffer. Now this process of fabrication, fabricating, is done through passion, which means that that's the desire we have. We have a passion for using these things for the sake of our desires. And this covers all forms of karma, good, bad, mixed, and even the karma of the Eightfold Path. All this is done through fabrication, it's done through passion. This is one of the reasons why the Four Noble Truths, they talk about desire. They don't put all desire under the category of craving and the origination of suffering. There is also a, rule for, uh, there's a role for desire in the path. You see this most clearly in right resolve, where you resolve to abandon unskillful behavior. You also see this in the factor of right effort, where you generate the desire to prevent unskillful things from arising, or if they have arisen, you may have the desire to get rid of them to give rise to skillful qualities, and then once they're there, you try to develop them. You have this desire to do this. You have to generate this desire. Um, so desire is not all bad. 
That's going to be, if you have one take home from the week, from today, it's not all desire is bad. There are desires that are skillful. And this is what the meditation is all about, is we have to learn how to foster skillful desires as opposed to unskillful ones. We have to bring knowledge to the process of how we fabricate them. Because the fabrication, if done through knowledge, does come part of the path. The path must also depend on passion. You have to want to do this. You have to be enthusiastic about it. As my teacher, John Fuhrer, once said, if you want to meditate well, you have to be crazy about meditation. And wanting to do it, slip it into all the little corners and everything of your daily life. Otherwise, it just doesn't, not going to work. Um, so the path depends on passion, and then when it has done its work, then through dispassion, that's when you abandon it. You don't abandon it beforehand. You abandon it when it has done its work. This means that we can't clone awakening. You know, we hear that a person, awakened person is without desire, so we say, okay, I will have no desires. Awakened person has no preferences, I'll have no preferences. That doesn't get you there. You have to learn, okay, there are skillful things that I've got to do, and I have to learn how to develop a passion for doing them well. That's how you get to, to the end of suffering. Some people have objected to this idea. They say, well, you know, the results have to resemble their causes. If we're looking for a a path, of, we're looking for an end of desire. We have to start out with an end of desire. But two things come up to that. One is the path does not cause release. The path takes you to it. Now, the image they give in the canon, or not in the canon, but in the banana, is you have a mountain, you have a road to the mountain. The road does not cause the mountain, but it gets you there. Um, and you look, you think about the Grand Canyon. Does the road to the Grand Canyon resemble the Grand Canyon? Not at all. But it gets you there. Secondly, of course, there are a lot of things that are caused in life that the causes do not resemble the, the results. I mean, smoke does not look like fire at all. However, you, there is a resemblance in the sense that you are path involves stages of letting go. It basically, the Buddha is giving you something good to hold on to so that you can let go of unskillful things. So there is a process of letting go as you go through the path. The forest of Johns um, often have these images. And John Mahabua's image is of a ladder. You're climbing a ladder to the top of the house. You, let, you hold on to one rung, you then you can hold on to the next one, and then you can let go of the lower one so you can hold on to the next one up and keep going up that way. And finally, when you get to the top of the house, that's when you let the ladder go. A John Fuang's image was, I guess he was telling this to me because I was an American, he says it's like sending a rocket to the moon. <laughs> you have the boosters, and then when the booster's done its job, the booster has to be dropped. So that they can actually get the, the capsule all the way up to the moon. Uh, John Cha has this image of you're coming back from a, a market and you're carrying a banana in your hand. And someone comes up, a smart aleck comes up, and asks you, why are you carrying the banana? And you say, because I'm planning to eat it. Are you planning to eat the peel? No. Then why are you carrying the peel? <laughs> and, John, and John Cha says, with what do you answer this person? And John Cha's answer is interesting because it comes in two stages. The first stage is you have to answer through desire. You have to have the desire to give a good answer before you're going to give the good answer. One. And two, then the good answer is it's not time yet to let go of the peel. If I let go of the peel now, the banana turns into mush into my hand. In the same way, there are aspects of the path that you have to hold on to. When it comes time to let go of them, you let them go. Otherwise, if you let go of them too early, your mind turns into mush. So, <laughs> so, so, the discussion then, because craving and clinging have their good side as well as their bad side, the discussion today will fall into two parts. Um, 
the first part is going to be about how we deal with un- what unskillful craving is, what unskillful clinging is. In the afternoon, we'll focus more on the skillful ways of formulating these things. Which cravings, which clingings act can you actually use on the path and how to use them. I have to warn you that we will not always be following the order of the readings. I made the readings because Steve said, you know, we have to have the readings several months in advance. And apparently while I was putting it together, I had one idea about how this was going to be organized. And then this last week as I was preparing, I decided I had a new order in mind. So we will be jumping around in the readings. Um, one more point I want to make before I stop for questions is the analysis we're following today follows the canon rather than the commentary on this issue. In particular, one of the areas where the canon and the commentary part ways is the question of which is the most important wisdom teaching in the, in the tradition? Is it the Four Noble Truths or the Three Characteristics? The canon really points. The can, excuse me. The canon points to the four noble truths. The commentary goes for the three characteristics, which is why the way they approach the path is very, very different. Um, primarily in the definition of ignorance. The canon says ignorance is ignorance of the four noble truths. What suffering is, what its cause is, how its cessation happens, and what the path is leading to the sensation. According to the commentary. Um, Ignorance is you don't understand the, th- the fact that everything is impermanent, stressful, and that there is no self. Um, that's how they define anatta. Um, it also comes in their definition of clinging. Um, for the commentary, clinging means you hold on to things because you think they're permanent, you think that they're happy or, or pleasant, and you think that they're yourself. Whereas the counterpoint says you can cling to things even when you see that they are Permanent. There's a, there are stages of awakening where you have a taste of the deathless and you hold on to that. That too is a form of suffering. So it's not just holding on to impermanent things that makes you suffer. You can suffer because you're holding on to the deathless. In putting the Four Noble Truths first, there are two things that have to be pointed out. One is that the Buddha never calls the three characteristics three characteristics. It's always three perceptions. There's the perception of inconstancy, the perception of stress, the perception of not-self. And as you practice the path, as you apply the duties of the Four Noble Truths, you will learn, you'll be, originally you'll be applying those three perceptions selectively. In other words, as you're practicing virtue, you apply the perceptions of inconstancy to anything that would pull you away from the practice of virtue. For instance, the Buddha says there are five things that you can lose in life, wealth, health, relatives, right view, and your virtue. And the Buddha says, okay, for the sake of the practice, you have to re- regard loss of health, loss of wealth, loss of relatives as minor issues, and loss of your virtue and loss of your right view as major losses. So you apply the perception of inconstancy, in stress, not self, to health, wealth, and your relatives. So that's an, it's a selective application of the per, that perception. When you're developing concentration, again, you pu- apply these three perceptions to the things that would pull you out of concentration. You don't apply it to the concentration itself. You don't sit there and see a moment of concentration comes up, and it comes, and then it goes, and there's your wisdom. No. It comes, again, in terms of right effort, you have to give rise to it, and when it's there, you have to develop it and maintain it. So you're actually going to be holding on to the concentration until the time comes when you let it go. The same with discernment. Anything that would get in the way of your discernment, you let that go, but you hold on to your discernment until it's done its work. Um, 
regarding the three perceptions this way instead of three characteristics, it, avo- it gives you one. The Four Noble Truths carry duties. The three characteristics don't carry any duties. I mean, you can take those three characteristics and you can do all kinds of things with them. I think life is in, stru- in constant stressful, not self. Let's go out and have a drink. <laughs> I mean, it, logically that follows. You, know? you can come up with all kinds of ways of dealing with impermanence that you like. Whereas in terms of the Four Noble Truths, it's obvious. Suffering is something you want to get rid of, but before you can get rid of it, you have to comprehend it. You abandon the cause. You realize the cessation of suffering by developing the path. There are duties that are inherent in those truths. And so we're applying the... Once you have those duties, then it's clear about how you apply these three perceptions. Um, Secondly, there's the issue of not-self. In the commentary, the teaching of not-self means there is no self. Which, according to the canon, it creates all, what the Buddha calls a tangle of views, a jungle of views, a writhing of views. In other words, it gets you involved in so many discussions that you don't have time to practice. Um, it also gets rid of some modern ideas, wrong views about the Dharma. Um, particularly, I was reading a while back, someone saying that you know that you reach stream entry when you see that there is no self. Now, there is no way you can prove to yourself that there is no self. That was one of those issues the Buddha himself avoided. You didn't answer the question. Um, and so the question, if you see that there is no self and you grab onto that idea, it's actually, it's actually a, a defilement of insight. Um, the real test for whether you, you've gained a taste of awakening is whether your realization induces an experience of something that is really deathless, and you've reached the point where you can trust yourself to say, well, this really is something that is unconditioned. You have to learn to develop a sensitivity to your mind first so you know the extent to which you are fabricating things and the extent to which something is not fabricated. That requires a lot of sensitivity, which you can develop only through developing the path. So that's the general approach we're going to take here today as we talk about craving and clinging. Are there any questions before we move on? So, um you have here all phenomena are rooted in desire. Mm-hmm. Um, when we see dependent origination, it usually starts with ignorance that's mm-hmm. creating the, the sort of the well, ignorance. He's talking about what kind of things lead to suffering. And he starts with ignorance. That's the first thing that leads to suffering. And why does he start there? Because that's what makes the difference between suffering and not suffering. Desire, on its own, is neither a cause of suffering or a cause of the end of suffering. It's once you apply ignorance to your desires, i.e. the bewilderment, that's when you're heading, you're heading, to, heading to suffering. Um, so is, is the sort of a, a true um, version of our happiness is not necessarily really to be happy, but to end suffering, would be what the Buddha would say? It comes down to the same thing, basically. Does it, though? Um, because well, you in said you of, can... The of, in the sense of, you say, if I really want to be happy, I would have to end of, there has to be an end of suffering. That's when you establish that as your standard. Other people, all I need to be happy is a nice Starbucks. You know, that, that, that's, you know, <laughs> that doesn't put you on the path. So it's ignorance that is the, the fact, the That's determining factor. That's what turns factor. a desire either into a cause for suffering or a cause for the end of suffering. And so does Nibbana have its own 
say, pull, if that's... Well, you look at the very, very last reading, and it says nirvana is the end of all dharmas. That's the one thing that is not caused by desire. And so is there a pull inherently in samsara of suffering to find... Well, again, the, the, the pull that's inherent is I want to find a way out of this suffering, but it's not necessarily directed at nirvana. So that, again, is in and of itself not creating anything or... Right. Mm-hmm. And, okay. It's when... We'll be talking about this as we get into the second half of the day, that you, you have to decide, I need to find somebody who really knows a way an end to suffering... You listen to them, you, you learn to take on their, you know, you gain conviction in their teachings, that's when you start practicing. There has to be that sort of leap over, okay, I've had enough of looking for the causes of suffering outside, I've got to learn how to look for them inside, and I have to get some advice from somebody who really knows. That's what makes a difference. Okay. And, and that really, we don't know any beginning or end to that. No. Where's the floating mic? Ajahn, I've heard you mention that story with Ajahn Chah at several different talks, and I've never really understood why he leads with that discussion about, you know, desire and how that really plays a role in the analogy. I've never quite got how that fits with that. I mean, I understand how, you know, the stepwise process, and you know, you carry the peel to get to the fruit later. And you're moving the mic back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but I don't understand how the desire necessarily relates to that story so much. Well, he, he says, well, it's, it's a perfect example of one of the things you've got to hold on to. Yeah. I mean, this idea, I have to let go of my desires. I mean, there's other, that other famous John Shaw story about the monk sitting in his hut after the storm you know, blew half the roof off. Mm-hmm. And John Shaw is coming up and saying, you know, why are you not fixing your hut? And he says, I'm practicing equanimity. And he says, this is the equanimity of a water buffalo, you know, change, you know, fix the roof. Which, which if, you, if, you, if you know Thai, that's a real insult. Um, <laughs> but he's making the point that you're not going to get anywhere on the path unless you have that desire, and you've got to hold on to the desire. So he's giving, giving you an illustration of this is how it actually works. You're not going to be able to answer the question unless you have the desire to answer the question. Uh, Ajahn, is uh, craving a fabrication? Yep. What kind of fabrication? It's going or to be is, that a, is, is that complex kind of fabrication? It's, it's complex, because it's, it's going to have the mental and the verbal, for sure. Okay. And bodily is fabrication is not involved in craving? In that sense, it's, you're, you're, you know, when, you're, when you're drowning, your first wish is, I've got to get some, some air, so there's going to be some craving there in the, in the breathing. Uh-huh. I see. So the moment when we are trying to drag in a little bit of air, there is the bodily fabrication. That is the craving of breathing yeah, the well, air. And this is why the fourth jhana is so dis- disorienting for a lot of people, because it's, there's no breath, uh-huh. and they get scared. But the primary issues that you're going to be dealing with are not, not so much the breath, it's going to be the, the verbal and the mental things. Now, as I'll be saying later, this is, this is what actually gives us a handle on going from unskillful craving to skillful craving. The fact that there is this talking to yourself involved. There was a, there was a controversy back during uh, the, the classical period of philosophy between the, the followers of Plato and the followers of the Stoics. You know, does, de- does desire have any reasons? 
According to Plato, your, de- your desire is just pure id, pure force, has no reasons at all. And then the question is, well, how could you actually gain some control over it? And the Stoics, I think, were a lot wiser, and they actually follow what the Buddha is saying. That you know, there is, the Buddha is saying that there is some direct thought and evaluation in your fabrication, and that's how you can talk to your desires. There is some reasoning. You, you have a reason for your desires. They may be weak, they may be you know, whatever, but there is a reasoning there. That the desire wants happiness. And so you have to point out to it, well, what you thought was going to lead to happiness is actually leading to suffering. Do you still want to go there? And if you, know, if you have enough alternatives that actually you know, show it that this is a way to happiness, the, the desire to you know, go out and kill and steal and rape or whatever, that's just going to go away. Also, um, so craving is obviously, uh, um, of course, there are two types of cravings. There's the, uh, the skillful craving and the unskillful. So ignorance of not knowing what, which one is the skillful, and that is basically the ignorance in the, the dependent origination right, chart. Right. Okay. Um, one more question. Uh, craving as, uh, is also divided into this sens- sensual craving, uh, form craving, and all that. Is, are any of those also, can they be also analyzed in terms of bodily fabrication, verbal fabrication, and mental fabrication, or are they, are they a different mode of looking at it? Or it's problem? a different mode. It's, uh, it's analyzed in a different way. Okay. Other questions? Where's the mic? Yeah, uh, I have a question regarding, uh, it's similar to what the gentleman say, but I would like to please help me to clarify the term desire. You know, I understand that we are practicing Buddhism. Uh, we try to uh, not uh, attach to any desire, although you, you said not all the desires are bad. Mm-hmm. However, um, when we do do we have to do with effort or efforts less? Because we will try to achieve something or, you know, equanimity. However, on the way, if we try to make an effort to mm-hmm. do it, we may end up suffering because of our desire to mm-hmm. become something or to do something. Mm-hmm. And that's one uh, side question is, how do we know when we are ready to, you know, peel the banana or... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know how we can be aware of our uh, strength and weaknesses while practicing Buddhism. Okay, you're going to have to, to begin with, to replace an unskillful desire with a skillful one. Okay. You can't just be without desire. So we have to have some desire. There has to be has to be some so, desire. Now, okay. and then what you're trying to learn how to do is which is skillful, which is unskillful. One, two. If you really like that unskillful desire, how do you talk yourself out of following it? This is where your discernment comes in. How do you psych yourself out so that you actually want to give rid, get rid of that desire? So we have to do another effort to, uh, to get effort. rid of our yeah. yeah. skillful mean, desire. There's an analogy the Buddha gives is of um, a person trying to get milk out of a cow. Okay. And you know, you're twisting the cow's horn and you're not getting any milk. Okay. And then you say, let's stop twisting the cow's horn. Fine. You feel much better. Right? The cow feels much better. So, but just we don't but action, you're not getting any milk. But we kind of disregard the outcome because we can never be always successful in... Uh, right, no, but the thing is, you, you, you've, you've given up twisting the cow's horn, but you still don't have any milk. You want the milk. Okay. 
So you have to learn, okay, what, you know, where, which part of the cow do I squeeze to get the milk? So if we make a plan. Yeah. We make a plan with our desire. Can we right. do that? We make what? We make a plan to go from step to step without having any desire to intervene. No, you've got to have the desire to throw the milk. Desire to do it. Right. But if it doesn't come out the way we then expect means, the okay, desire. Then maybe, maybe the desire is either wrong or else, as the Buddha said, it may, may be excessive or, or too weak. Now, if it's excessive, what it basically means is you're focusing so much on the results that you're not really paying attention to the causes. So if you have to have a right view then. Right. And also say, okay, if, I want the, if I want X, I've got to focus on the causes. And you want to go to the mountain, you're driving down the road. You don't keep looking at the mountain. You run off the road. But if you're going down the road, you say, okay, I know this road leads to the mountain. I will focus on the road. So we can just practice without expecting or having any desire to do it. We do no, it, you have to have expectations. Have, so Every now and then you check in the rear of your mirror to make sure the mountain is not in your rear view mirror. But you have to trust. You have to trust. Okay, I trust in this path. I'm going to really focus on this path. And it's your trust in your path that helps you keep you focused and get you toward the mountain. So we kind of relied on our own judgment and what yeah, we are This is where it's good to have a teacher. Exploring you have to do some exploration, but it's good to have a good teacher to warn you, hey, you're okay. getting off the road. That you know. needs guidance. Right. Okay. okay. Yes. Thank you. What about here? So we're using this word desire, which in English, is that actually when you're talking about skillful and unskillful desires. Mm-hmm. Are we actually talking about two different Pali words, like nope, tanha nope, versus nope, chanda? No, no, no. 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 Ha- I mean, they have the two words, chanda and dunha, and both of them can be either skillful or unskillful. You sometimes hear some say, well, you know, chanda can be skillful or unskillful, but dunha is always bad. No, it's not the case. So I'd like to bring up for the commentary on um, the the concept of desire from what the um, young lady said, um, because um, there is, for example, um, uh, <laughs> sorry, um, in in any culture, right? You always have this 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 predetermined desire. For say in, in Western terms, you have a goal in mind and you pursue that goal. That is a desire. That is a path that you want to pursue in order for to attain some sort of um, and, and like enrichment. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, um, you you want to um, you want to get good grades. I'm a student, right? The desire for good grades, the desire to to be a good student, um, pre preconditions you to to work hard for a degree for a um for a bachelor's so would you say that a skillful desire if you prolong it if you endure it then you attain um good good results good outcomes mm-hmm. if you stick with it if, again if it's the desire is skillful and you you approach it in the right way i.e. Realizing, okay, if I do this, this is leading me to my goal. And so you focus on doing this. Should get you to the goal. Yes. Then it is considered a 
um, a more wholesome approach to desire. Right. I would say. Yeah. Right. Because you make sure you gotta make sure your goal is good. Yes. And then secondly, if you know the way to you know you know the way there, and you focus on the way, then that's going to get you there. And if you suffer along that that pursuits, for example, I like you know just staying up all night to study, and you you suffer, you feel like you're suffering. Oh, this is terrible, this is horrible, um, being malnourished. But then the end result is that you are more fulfilled. You are more, um, you develop that strong strong core and that strong mind. Don't stay up all night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to learn how to pace yourself. And, and, yeah. <laughs> I was able to go to bed every night at college at 11, a, 11 p.m., okay? Yeah. Except for a couple all-nighters, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. I graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Oh. Yeah, okay. so, so, I mean, it's, you have to learn how to pace yourself, but you do have to learn how to make sacrifices. And this is an important part of the path. And there's points where the Buddha says, you know, if you find that even though your tears are running down your face because you're so frustrated in the, in the practice, don't give up. But it also means, okay, look back, okay, what am I doing wrong? And sometimes it will require a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice to hold to the skillful desire, to hold to the skillful path. But that suffering is worth it. Because you ultimately you know that the path is, is the most... Um greatest thing that well look at what the Buddha did I mean, he starred himself all those years trying to find a way to find to find the path so the, all that effort he put into it was not wasted yes. but he had to find the right path now we have someone who's found the right path can tell it to us so you don't have to go out and starve yourself for six years question, question back there this question way in the back So in, in modern terms, how do we distinguish between skillful and unskillful desire on a day-to-day basis? Okay, first ask yourself, you know, this desire I have, is it going to break the precepts? First is the precepts. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, then, then you get into more subtle things. But basically you have to have a clear idea of what your goal is. You know, really want to, what the Buddha calls the noble search, I want to find a happiness that doesn't die. What qualities do I need to work on? And is this going to lead me in that direction or away from it? If you're not sure, ask somebody you trust for some help. But if you, you know, in, and the other way of not being not sure is, well, give it a try. But look, be very careful about looking at your actions and the results that are actually coming about. And if you find this is harming somebody, you stop. And if you realize you did harm somebody in the past, you talk it over with someone so you can get some better ideas about how you might approach the same problem the next time and do it skillfully. And if you've seen that you have done something skillful, okay, take pride in that. That gives you energy to keep going. Yes. Jeff, you can, what, this is floating mic here. Right in the back, right in the back. Yes, good morning. Um, 
just want to start with a comment and then possibly uh, with a question right after that. Um, first of all, the question associated with uh, skilled desire versus unskilled desire. Um, one is that unskilled desire are considered to be ignorant. Would that be accurate? Well, it, it doesn't know what really is the suffering, what the cause of suffering is, or what the path is. Those are all ignorant. I see. And then second question is that earlier when you talking about uh, keeping your eye on the road uh, versus knowing where it leads to the mountain, uh, obviously that has a, a analogy that which uh, earlier associated with the bigger containers versus smaller and smaller and smaller containers, mm-hmm. uh, where you are actually uh, the skilled desire is actually an adjustment for you to go toward the bigger goal, which is the bigger box. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what that really means is that you know when you when you're looking at things from a standpoint of what you're trying to achieve uh, versus what you're trying to do immediate, mm-hmm. uh, the skill um, desire itself is an aid directly to what you're trying to do immediate. Versus even though it, it go, helps also helps you towards a certain direction where you ultimately like to achieve. Mm-hmm. So I think that that understanding is that accurate. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you mean exactly by the body being uh, fabricated by the breath? Your, if you close your eyes, how do you sense your body? It's because of the breath. When the breath stops, your, your sense of the body begins to, start to disintegrate. And this is, you know, when you move from the fourth jhana into the, into the, into the state, state of infinite space, there is no sense of the shape of your body. It's when the breath is moving that you have a sense, you know, my hand is here, my, this here is, my leg is there, whatever. So your, experience, your very first experience of the body is the energy. And then through that you, exp- you experience the other elements. And I guess uh, through just consistent observation, um, it becomes clear that that all the these different um, physical sensations or tingling or energy that you feel in the body, mm-hmm. those are seem to be a manifestation of, of the breath or right. arise from the right. breath. Oh, okay. Thank you. Ajahn, um, the case, the story of the Buddha's six years of struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had the desire for. Uh, ultimate happiness. He probably started out with that. Uh, but he didn't know whether the path he was taking was correct or right, not right. in that six years. Uh, he was persisting on that, but if he had the attitude that I'm not going to give up, uh, I'm going to stick with it regardless of how much of struggle it is, mm-hmm. then he might not have even considered the possibility of another path. Would that be right to yeah, say? Yeah, there came, there came a point, though, where he realized, okay, this is going nowhere. Hmm. So how are we to, or maybe, um, is there a way for us to know the right way to uh, judge our progress? Uh, it's basically, that's, that's what it boils down to, right? I mean, he's, he was judging his progress, and he was saying, this is not going somewhere. So mm-hmm. there's a right way to judge it versus a wrong way. Or yeah, and this is one another place where it's good to have a good teacher hmm. that you can go to them and say, you know, is this am I am I doing something wrong here? 
Hmm. Now we hit the, we're, our situation is very different from the Buddhist. I mean, he was feeling his way. Whereas we have, you know, we have some guideposts and we have the tradition of the Sangha that's there to help you. Okay. Of course, the Sangha is not always going to be there. And this is one of the reasons why part of your training should be to become more sensitive to reading your own mind, looking at your own actions, and learning to reflect on them. Hmm. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Uh, can, can the path manifest in worldly desires? Up to a point. I mean, there can be. You may want some certain accomplishments so that you can, you know, develop your character, develop your perfections. Um, what what kind of desires did you have in mind? Uh, no, I, 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 I mean, no, just similar to what he was asking. You know, how do we know what it's like? You know, is is it always religious practice, or can can a life being I don't know, any kind of profession be the path to liberation. Again, there are, there are right professions and wrong professions, but then you can ask yourself, okay, what kind of qualities am I developing as I pursue this profession? profession? And if you find that you're, you're developing truthfulness, you're developing determination, you're developing your patience, you're developing your endurance, you're developing you know, other good qualities, okay, that can be part of the path. But if you find that you know that you're in an occupation where they're expecting you to lie, they're expecting you to you know cut corners, you say maybe I'm in the wrong place. To to immediately follow up on that, the idea of profession. Well, first of all, thank you for being here. Um, as a musician, I feel like the practice definitely strengthens concentration and focus and dedication and mm-hmm. um, but it's a sensual pleasure my question is do you think that it's possible for us to become Mara for other people oh yeah mm-hmm. 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 thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 So if you feel lacking, so you you mentioned having the crazy about meditating, Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have that. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think that it's something that you can sort of fake it to make it? Well, you can cultivate it. So you can sort of uh, cultivate it by faking it, or do you have any tips for... (laughs) (laughs) What they talk about generating desire is learning how to talk to yourself. You know, why do I n- not want to you know, meditate more? Maybe I don't have a strong sense of you know, how important the meditation is, how much I need it. Maybe I'm not enjoying the meditation. Um, and so in, in order to develop a better sense of how important it is, you can go down to an old folks' home and say, well, this is what happens to people who don't meditate. <laughs> not that they grow old, but you, you see these people kind of wandering around, you know, lost. Um, and not, you know, basically not able to handle pain, not able to handle loneliness. So I'd really like to be in a position where I don't have to w- be afraid of those things. 
And secondly, learn how to realize, okay, if I can work with the breath, I'm learning a lot about how my body works. Free medicine. I have a problem with drowsiness. I mm-hmm. think I, I, I get drowsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, ask which part of your mind likes the drowsiness. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, I, you know, I, I feel that I'm stressed out as I'm you know, living in this society and I need some sleep. That's a big one right there. And say, well, you know, nobody ever slept their way to awakening. <laughs> and there are alternative ways of getting energy aside from sleeping. You know? You know, by looking, working with an energetic breath. You know. See, you know, see what I have in the breath that I haven't been taking advantage of. Thank there are you. lots of ways to you know, sort of motivate yourself to keep going. When I was in Thailand, my first, first couple of months as a monk, there was another young Thai monk who had just ordained. And we'd go to the top of the hill to meditate together. And I was sitting there, I was in pain, and the mosquitoes were biting, and it was just kind of miserable. But I'd look over at him, and he was very calm. <laughs> and I said, you know, for the good name of America, I've got to sit. You know, I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> And I found out later, he was sitting there and the mosquitoes were biting him and he was in pain. He looked over, this American was very calm. And he just, <laughs> it was too embarrassing to quit before the American. So we kept each other going. You know? <laughs> so figure out some way to motivate yourself. It may not be the most skillful, whatever, you know, you know national pride is not the most skillful thing. But it's, it got me over a big hump. You know? So see what you're going to get yourself over that attraction to drowsiness. Okay, um, I think we better get moving on the material. <clears throat> okay, craving. Okay. The Buddha says there are three types of craving. Sensuality craving, becoming craving, and non-becoming craving. Let's talk a little bit about this first before we look at the readings. Okay. Okay, sensuality. Sensuality is not sensual pleasures. Sensuality is our fascination with thinking about sensual pleasures, planning sensual pleasures, going over sensual pleasures of the past to plan more sensual pleasures for the future. That's sensuality. And that's what we're attached to much more than actual sensual pleasures. I'll give you an example. You're planning to have pizza for lunch. You can decide, you can just kind of tune out of the discussion today and just start thinking about what kind of pizza you want. You know? And you really enjoy thinking, you know, do I want pepperoni? Do I want a vegetarian pizza? What do they have in the area? And the, your plans about where you're going to have the pizza, what kind of pizza you're going to have, there are lots of variations. And you can play with those. And there's this fascination we have. I'd like to have lots of options open to me, and then I can think about them. When you actually taste the pizza, how, how long does it take to eat a pizza? You know, not that long. You can think about the pizza for an hour. You can think about the pizza for an hour after you've eaten it. Eating it doesn't take an hour. You know? It's very quick. Um, now, if you were to tell somebody, okay, you can't have a pizza today, and they say all the pizza shops are you know, closed on strike or something, you say, that's okay, there's other kinds of food, other kinds of food. However, if someone were to tell you, say, you cannot think about a pizza at all for the next two hours, you will start thinking about pizza, right? You will rebel. It's this freedom we have to, fa- you know, to 
fantasize about sensual pleasures. That's what we're really attached to. Years back there was a book on the Buddhist approach to desire in which the author is basically saying, desire is not a bad thing as long as you're not attached to the objects of your desire. Now that's a recipe for a serial sex offender, you know? This is not what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha is saying the problem is in the desire itself. So we're, let, we're attached to that desire. And as the Buddha says, we're delighted in sensuality because we see no other alternative to pain, boredom, a dull life. This, this is what, what we think. So this, as we'll see when we get into discussing path, that's one of the things the path has to provide is an alternative pleasure to sensual pleasure, which is the pleasure of, the, of the concentration. Pleasure of getting the mind to settle down, having a sense of fulfillment in that in that state of settled mind. So that's the first kind of craving that causes clinging. The second kind of craving is craving for becoming. Now, becoming is a complex con- is a concept, but it's something we're doing all the time. Basically, what it is is your desire to take on an identity in a particular world of experience. The desire itself is the kind of the kernel or the nucleus for that state of becoming. And then around that, your sense of the world gets defined by that desire, and your sense of who you are in order to get that desire also gets defined around the desire. I'll give you a couple examples. Take pizza again. Okay. Um, when you have a pizza becoming, One, it's, okay, it's based on their desire for pizza. The world right now is basically what is out there going to help you get the pizza and what is in the way of getting your pizza. Those are the things that are relevant in that particular world. You know, the question of you know, who is president of the United States right now is not relevant. <laughs> no reaction. Um, <laughs> The question of you know, what's happening over in Africa, what's happening over in Australia, what's happening on the North Poles, what's happening in the universe, that's not, those are things that are not relevant. What's relevant right, for that particular desire is, how do I get the pizza? What's getting in the way? That's the world. Um, there's a, there was a Far Side cartoon where you know, a nuclear war is starting, people are running around in the city, everybody's going kind of crazy, and there's this car that's come to stop at a stoplight, and there's a dog sitting in the, in the passenger seat looking out the window. And he sees another dog on the sidewalk, and in the midst of all this hysteria and everything. And the caption was, you know, finally Fido saw something that captured his attention. <laughs> you know, that your, your world is defined that by that particular desire. Their sense of you around that desire is, one, the part of you that's going to be satisfied and find, find pleasure in eating the pizza, the you as a consumer. And then the part of you that is actually capable of going out and getting the pizza. You've got enough money, you've got the car, you've got whatever you need in order to get these things. That's you in that particular becoming. So you have this world defined by the desire, you have your sense of you as defined by the desire. All of that together is becoming. Now we go from becoming to others becoming in the course of the day as our desires change. You know, you, you decide, you know, pizza's not such, a, such an important thing after all, I want something else. Or you may not even be thinking about food. You have other desires. You have the desire, say, to win a political argument. You have the desire to do well in school. Whatever your desire is, also, you are suddenly defined by that. Your world is defined by that. 
And we go through these in the course of the day. Um, and the Buddha says they come on three levels, these becomings. And they also come on small scale and large scale. The small scale, of course, is that particular desire and the becoming that develops around it in your mind. The large scale becoming is what we're sitting in here right now. We're all on a human level of becoming. We share this world together. We are people in this particular room, in this particular world. This is, you know, when you take birth in a particular lifetime, that is becoming on a large scale. You latch onto this body. This is your body for the, the duration of this life. And this is the world that you're going to be experiencing for the duration of this life. When the time comes, you can't stay in this body any longer, the mind is going to say, well, I've got to find a new place. And wherever the desires take it, it basically says, you have, there will be a craving that will go out and you will cling to that craving, and that will take you to the new, a new identity and a new world, the large-scale becoming. So what this means is it's the small-scale becomings lead to the large-scale becomings. So you know, when you're sitting here fantasizing about, watch out. You may actually be reborn in that way. Recently I was translating a, a short story from Thai. It's kind of a long story as to why I was translating it. But there's this, it's a story about this man who gets a magic talisman. It's a dead, <laughs> the tail of a dead cat. <laughs> and he's been told, if you make a wish, you know, the, the cat's tail will give you what you want. And he wants this cat's tail so much because, as the story said, he could ask for things he would never thought of asking before. <laughs> The idea that there's some means of getting, uh, broadening the range of desires that I can satisfy. All of a sudden, you have new desires, desires that never occurred to you. It's just like you know, getting an iPhone. All of a sudden, there are things that you can do with an iPhone that you could never do without the iPhone, and you discover you have desires you never even thought of before. So, in the particular in the story, he asked for two two hundred baht, which back in those days was quite a lot of money. And, and a seri- it sets in, into motion a series of events where it ends up with his son dying, getting run over by a car, a nobleman's car, and the nobleman feels really bad about it. So in order to compensate, he gives the parents 200 baht. <laughs> so watch out for what you wish. That's, that's a good lesson about becoming. So there are three levels of these becomings that we go into. There's sensuality. There's a, uh, there's a becoming on form and the becoming of the formless. Now, sensuality covers all the levels of the universe from the lowest hells up to the highest sensual heavens. This is all run by sensuality. We have sensual desires that we fantasize about, and these lead us to be reborn in these particular places. And then to experience that for a while, and then we fall from that, or rise from the lower ones. Higher than the sensual becomings are the the becomings of form. This is where you, t- you have a desire based on how nice it would be just to be able to sit with my eyes closed and just experience my body. My body feels good with the breath energy. It feels good with the, the mo- its ability to settle down with a sense of a comfortable form. This is, these are the Brahma levels, the kind of the lower Brahma levels. And then higher than that are the levels of the formlessness, where you said, wh- who wants to have a form? Wouldn't it be nice to be just infinite space, infinite consciousness? That, too, is a level of becoming. So you have three levels of becoming, and you find that in terms in, that's I just told you the large-scale becomings, but these also occur in small-scale becomings. When you're sitting here, concentrated on your breath, everything is really calm, you are in taking on a becoming of form. You're finding your pleasure on the level of form. If you move into the states of 
infinite space, infinite consciousness, so you're taking on a becoming on a formless level. Now, sometimes abstract thought, and you get really involved in mathematics. This is why people like math, is because you don't have to worry about a body. You just be there in the world realm of abstraction. That also would be a formless level. So we take on, on these m- multiple levels of becoming in the course of a day. And some of us are you know, pretty much stuck on the sensual level. Other people move to the form or formless levels. But it's also possible at the end of life to focus on one of these levels and take on becoming on one of those three levels. So craving for any of that is a second form of, uh, second form of craving that causes suffering. And the selves that you take on in these many levels can be, include an interconnected self, an infinite self, a formless self. self. The idea of self can take on many, many identities based on the, what the desire is. Then the final third f- t- form of craving, after sensuality and becoming, is the craving for a non-becoming. In other words, you want to annihilate that particular world or that particular self in that particular world that you've taken on. This, can, this too can be on a large scale or a small scale. Large scale, of course, is you know, I would like to be annihilated. I'm, my, I'm finding no happiness in life. I just want to end it. That would be craving for non-becoming. There are some people who believe that you know, after you die, you will be nothing. And that, wouldn't that be cool to be nothing? <laughs> just, just be done with everything. Um, that also would be counted as a, de- a desire for annihilation. I mean, secular Buddhists are basically annihilationists, and they have a craving for non-craving for non-becoming, and suffering because of that. Um, there are some people who believe that, you know, if you you can actually make annihilation happen simply by saying, "Okay, I'm going to practice in such a way, practice meditation in such a way, so that I will not, I will annihilate all becoming at the end." This is going to put you in a quandary. We'll get to this in a minute. Because you've got this quandary, okay, craving for becoming is going to cause suffering, craving for non-becoming is going to cause suffering. What do you do? How do you get out of this double bind? Because part, part of the path is to put an end to becoming, but if we, if we go out trying to get rid of becoming or annihilate becoming, we take on a new identity as an annihilator, the person who's going to put an end to this. That, too, is a kind of becoming as well. The Buddha's way out of this is kind of like a catch-22. He gives advice in two ways. One, he says, you look at things when you move from right, mundane right view to transcendent right view. In mundane right view, it's, it's expressed in terms of selves and worlds. I mean, I will experience the results of my actions, and, will, and there are other worlds that will be reborn into. When you move to the Four Noble Truths, there's no mention of selves, no mention of worlds at all. It's all simply... What are the actions that lead to suffering? What are actions that lead to the end of suffering? And the sense of who you are and the world you're in just does not enter into the equation. So in other words, you look at reality, you look at your experience in different terms. You say, just put the whole issue of becoming and non-becoming aside and just say, where is the suffering? What action is leading to the suffering? Can I stop that action? And when you reach the end of, su- and when you reach the end of those kind of unskillful actions, and then you reach the end of skillful actions, that's when you get the deathless. So you don't even think in terms of selves or worlds. That's one tec- technique that the Buddha recommends. The other was, as I mentioned earlier, we're getting this raw material in from our past actions that we then create. 
one of the problems with robes. Um, they pull these wires. You, and norm, normally, the, the raw material comes in, and we're already subconsciously trying to form it into aggregates and form it into a becoming of some kind. And the Buddha says, if you can get the mind concentrated enough and sensitive enough, you can begin to s- just be there with the raw material as it comes, but not try to create anything new out of it. You're not putting an end to it. It comes, and then it goes. And you're not getting involved. But that requires strong powers of concentration, a good foundation in virtue, and strong discernment to be able to do that. But that discernment will also be involved in, as I said, the Four Noble Truths, just saying what actions are leading to suffering, which actions are, not, are leading away from suffering. Let's abandon the ones that are leading towards suffering. So that's craving. Now the Buddha talks about conditions for craving and also locations for craving. And this is an important thing. The conditions for craving, if you look independent or rising, is feeling. You have a pleasant feeling, you want this to be maintained. You want to maintain that sense of pleasure. There's an unpleasant feeling, you want to get rid of it. If there is a, ple- a feeling of neither, neither pleasure nor pain, you're bored by it, you want something new. So that's these, this is one of the ways in which feeling gives rise to craving. However, there's a question of where, where exactly is the craving located? Where is it focused? Now, it's not always focused directly on that pleasure. It's not always focused directly on the pain. You're focused on something else. And it's good to see exactly where it is, because if you don't see the exact location, you're not going to be able to understand, well, why do I go for this? This will come in later when we talk about seeing where the allure is for a particular unskillful state. For example, one of the reasons why relationships don't work is you think you desire another person, but actually you desire your perception of that other person or your plans for that other person. You know, you, you, you know, so-and-so may be like good raw material, you know? <laughs> you know, this person looks like, it's not quite what I want, but you know, I can sort of change him or her. And I, can, and <laughs> I don't have to explain this, do I? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's good to see where exactly the craving is located so you can understand how you can get, why you like it to begin with. And this is how advertising works. Do they, actually, do they actually sell BMWs in advertisement? They sell your concept of you as the owner of the BMW. No? Do you remember the BMW chill from years back? This guy comes to the top of a car park, it's up on, and he looks around, and there are all these you know, ugly jalopies, and there's his BMW. You know? And he goes, mm. <laughs> And you want to shoot him, right? <laughs> It's not selling the BMW, it's selling the pride of ownership in a BMW. You know, it's selling your verbal fabrications around the BMW. And so it's good to notice, okay, where exactly is your desire for this BMW located? It's not in the BMW itself. So the fact that we have feelings that give rise or are conditioned for craving is one thing, but actually where is the location of the craving? Because it's that location around which your sense of self and your world of a becoming get formed. This is how these kinds of sensual craving, craving for becoming, craving or non-becoming, this is how they get formed. And you have to see exactly where that location is, because as we'll be getting, finding out later on, an arahant, someone who is totally awakened, has no location. It's the craving that creates the locations in our world. So we've got three types of craving for sensuality, becoming, for non-becoming. Three levels of becoming 
sensual, form and formless. The issue about the fact that because craving for non-becoming is also a cause for becoming, how when we get onto the path it's going to require a certain amount of strategy. Finally, there's the duty. Craving, these three kinds of craving, are the cause of suffering. The, the, your duty with regard to the cause of suffering is to abandon it. And John Sowett had a good comment about this. We tend to see craving as our friend and suffering as our enemy. He said, we do a lot better to see suffering as our friend and craving as our enemy. Really, this is the problem. This is where we're going. This is where we're going wrong. Um, then there's the question of it's, because we also, we can't abandon suffering directly. We have to abandon the craving. You have to attack, attack the problem at its cause. Um, it's like going into your house, seeing your house is full of smoke. And you try to put out the smoke. That's not going to work because the fire is still producing more and more smoke. You've got to find the fire, put out the fire, that's the end of the smoke. So we're going to have to focus on the craving, abandon that. Once we see where is it located, what's the allure, then we can abandon it. And this, as I said, is the second noble truth. What's noble about it? Well, one, it's the understanding of craving and suffering that will lead to what the Buddha says is a noble goal, i.e. the end of all aging, illness, and death. He basically said there are two searches in life. There's this, the ignoble search when you're looking for things that are subject to aging, illness, and death, and the noble search where you're looking for something that is not subject to aging, illness, and death. And this is the understanding of craving that will get you to the noble goal. That's one of the reasons why the truth is noble. The second is you're looking for the causes of your suffering, not outside, you're not blaming other people. You're taking responsibility. And that's a noble approach to suffering. Okay, I'm the one who's causing my own suffering. People in the world can behave in horrible ways. I don't have to suffer from that if, I'm, if I gain skill. It's this understanding of craving that makes this a noble truth. So the, you know, the Buddha's not out there trying to say, well, we'll try to get rid of all kinds of causes of suffering, both internal and ex external. No, we focus on the internal ones, because that's where the real suffering comes from. So that's the introduction to the topic of craving. Before we go on into the material, is, are there any questions? Yes. Thank you. Uh, two clarification questions. Mm -hmm. uh, the first was other than the kind of oxymoron quality of secular Buddhism, I missed the jump to annihilation. Well, the idea being, being, being yeah. that, okay, when you die, that's the end. You're just a, a psychophysical organization, organism. There's no way that rebirth can happen. And so basically that's an annihilationist view. And the, the people really cling to this. And the other one, thank you, um, the other is... When you said that's why relationships don't work, da 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 da. da. So what about that's a monk's perception, right? Yes. So, <laughs> so you're like friendship. Okay, now the ones that work are where you're actually clear about why you like the other person, and you're clearer about what's you know what exactly where your desires are with regard to the other person. And the ones that don't work are because you know you you have a certain idea about the other person you think you want the other person but it has nothing to do with that other person it's all about your perception about the other person the thoughts you have the plans you have those kinds of things 
There's a question back here. Um, yeah, I, I have a couple questions. Uh, let me, I'll just state them both. One is I'm looking at Section 8, and I, I'm, not, I'm trying to understand the bit about adherence and uh, overcome by two viewpoints, what it means to be overcome by two viewpoints, and what is meant by adherence in that case. The other question has to do with... Um, you know, I'm not I'm not a professional musician, but I've been exploring music and learning how to play instruments, and it's it's been really interesting, and it seems also very parallel in many ways to Dharma study, in that mm-hmm. you have to kind of give yourself over to right, it, right? Mm-hmm. Get out of your brain, and and mm-hmm. and also because with certain instruments, at least, you feel it in your whole body, mm-hmm. and it's a way you can connect and communicate that's not intellectual. So I'm sort of wondering about that in terms of enjoying the becoming of Mm -hmm. music. And is that bad or is that sort of like the banana peel that kind of gets you there because it helps you develop persistence and good things, but ultimately you want to give it up? It's a banana peel. It's a banana peel. At best. Okay. And, and so the other I mean, question uh, was just about the overcoming and adherence and what those words mean. Okay, I'm being overcoming means um, these viewpoints basically consume you. In other words, you, you see the whole world in terms of these viewpoints. And the first case is that adherence here is when you delight in becoming. You just want to have a better and better and better becoming. That Those are the only terms you can think of. And when the Buddha talks about putting an end to becoming, yeah, it doesn't want to go there. It sounds bland. Nirvana sounds like a big vanilla pudding um, that you don't see anything, or, or worse, you, you, there'd be nothing of, of any interest there. And then, so the idea of giving up your becomings just doesn't appeal to you. So that's 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 called adhering. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you. Mm-hmm. I also just one one question here uh, is the fact that when we're talking about uh, craving. Um, Sensuality or becoming or non-becoming, um, or all these—it's rather I wanted to say individualistic, uh, subjective, simply because the fact that what's relevant or selectively relevant to you mm-hmm. might not be relevant for others. Right. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, it's rather subjective in my mind, and you had to be conscious of that. Right. You have to be conscious of the fact that you are creating these becomings all the time. But also, it, it, to be when you're sensitive to that, then you can be sensitive to the process. Okay, when the body becomes uninhabitable, when time you can't you can't live here, the mind is going to continue with that kind of process. Where would be a better world? Where would be another identity I can take on? Because that's what it's thinking in. Now, the idea isn't there to solve the world problem, but rather solve your own. Exactly. So, in other words, you need to focus upon yourself, take on the responsibility of being responsible for yourself your own happiness, your unhappiness, whatever. Right. However, part of that, learning how to be skillful, is also involves being generous. Absolutely. You can't just say, I'm just going to hide out into hell with the rest of the world. You have to say, I've got these talents, I've got these abilities, what can I do with them that would be for the good of others as well? But it is for the purpose of developing this inner res- responsibility. Thank you, Ajahn. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
So you've said that um, cravings can be both skillful and unskillful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you talked about the three types, uh, craving for sensuality, becoming, and non-becoming. Those are the three types that lead to suffering. Those are the unskillful ones. Oh, so those are all unskillful. Right, I was going right. to ask you to give examples of <laughs> skillful, skillful for each of okay, those. Okay, well, I mean, the Buddha actually says, well, it's actually it's Ananda who says, one form of craving is you see that other people have gained awakening, and you say, they can do it, they're human beings, I'm a human being, why can't I do that? I want that too. So that's sort of a skillful craving yeah, for it's skillful, becoming. Skillful craving for becoming, yeah. But would there ever be a skillful craving for sensuality or no. for non-becoming? No. no. I mean, there are skillful, relatively skillful sensual pleasures, like the pleasure of you know, being out in nature, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of living in a harmonious group. Um, there's a passage where the Buddha says, you know, he doesn't say that pleasure is bad, but you have to look at, when I indulge in a particular pleasure, what does it do to my mind? Now, certain, certain pleasures will not have a bad effect on some people, but they have a very bad effect on others. So if it's just, this is going to be an individual matter. Which pleasures can you indulge in without a problem? Which pleasures do you have to watch out for? Thank you. Mm-hmm. There's a question over here. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Um, I was wondering um, what your thoughts are, as well as what, if anything, that the Buddha talked about or in Buddhist texts about the fact that... Um, that you're you're wanting to extend, you're looking at yourself, right? Your individual cravings. But what about expanding it to the fact that um, that craving and greed can also make other people suffer? Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and what does it say in the Buddhist text about that? Okay, well, the Buddha says if your if your happiness depends on harming other people, mm-hmm. then it's not going to last. I mean, they're going to do what they can to put an end to your happiness. So you have to ask yourself, you know, when I act, if I acted on this craving, would it harm other people? Now this doesn't mean, does it hurt other people's feelings? Harming and hurting feelings are two separate things. Okay. Because some people, you know, have easily hurt feelings. Right. And they can, they can try to run your life when you say, no, I can't let my life be run by that. Mm-hmm. But primarily, with, it, with this... What I'm doing, would this give rise to more greed, aversion, and delusion in other people? Am I doing it with that purpose? Secondly, is anything I'm doing going to cause other people to have to break the precepts? That would be harming them. So you have to say, I can't do that. I, have to, I can't go there. Mm-hmm. Right, because there's some things that are very discreet and subtle, too, as well. So mm-hmm. I guess the awareness aspect is, is very crucial, right? right? And getting out of ignorance. Um, the second thing I have is, this pastor I've been dipping my toes in um, activism mm-hmm. and taking social justice classes. So there's always been a desire in me to, um, although I don't really act on it that much because of, you know, I don't know how, but um, of, you know, like justice, mm-hmm. you know, of reducing suffering, of thinking this is not right, you know, mm-hmm. down with Trump kind of, no, or, you know, like housing rights and capitalism and all of that stuff and, and greed and I'm totally like anti-Tesla and BMWs and everything but um, I'm wondering how do you how do you approach that like how do you approach like um, doing that in a, a skillful skillful way when I have like my own personal you know sensual cravings like you know food <laughs> like being obsessed with food that's my my issue so um, I have a lot of 
you know, like health issues and other things that I need to kind of work on. So like that distracts me. But how do you how do you navigate that? Well, you look at social action as a form of generosity. Mm-hmm. You've got extra time. You've got extra energy. You've got your resources. You want to give. Okay. This is how you want to give them. And in terms of where you want to give them, the Buddha says that's totally up to you. You can take on Tesla. You can take on capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> that's your choice. Yeah. Um, you also want to, but then we could do a whole morning on this. Sorry. Um, but um, the second question is. How do you do this skillfully? And the Buddha says, one, you want to do it in such a way that you're not harming yourself, you're not harming others. Yeah. In other words, you don't break the precepts. Yeah. You don't over ex- you overextend yourself. Yeah. So you have to look at where, what is this doing to my mind as I engage in this? And if you find that you're getting kind of burnout, you say, wait, I'm pushing too hard, or I'm pushing in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's up to you to sort of learn how to read how capable or how much energy you have to give. It's like you have X amount of money, how much of it do you share? Well, you, you have to figure that out for yourself, how much you, you can live without. Mm-hmm. And to what extent does it become harmful to you? Or are you giving too much or giving in the wrong place? Okay. But yeah, think of it as a kind of generosity. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. Yeah. Well, I, I thought that you were about to say something. Oh, <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I was, but then I saw, I thought you were going to say okay. something. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I just, and I've noticed that with social activists, like burnout, but also very judgy, mm-hmm. you know, very righteous, like mm-hmm. very, and that's actually can be actually draining. Mm-hmm. Like I still like, you know, I, I think also growing up with like a really judgy mom doesn't help either. So I judge everything, but I totally super judge, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I was just like, oh, those like, you know, bougie, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I, I need to get that. I guess that's too much information, but I'm just like, oh, like this is not helpful, I guess, but I still okay. do it. Yeah. Okay, well, you have to say, think about well, who am I helping when I do this? I'm, make, I'm doing this as a gift for somebody. Okay. And so focus on, okay, if I do this, I'm doing this for the sake of helping so-and-so. Okay. Secondly, you've got to have a lot of goodwill, mm-hmm. especially for certain people in her positions of high power. Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to deal effectively with them. So even How do we get them less dysfunctional? I find that people in positions of power are mostly like almost all dysfunctional, and that's just that's why it's so scary. Yeah. But anyways, that's a whole another thing. Sorry. Yes. Okay. So, but I mean, this is why we say yeah. have goodwill yeah. for the people you don't like. Okay. It's time to break for lunch, so we'll have questions may, afterwards. May May I add a question? Yeah. Yes. Me. Uh, Master, I had a question. Um, how did a person realize about crazy uh, craving for form and formless? Mm-hmm. And what is the good or bad regarding to reborn in form and formless? Okay, well, the good Thank thing you. is it's very pleasant. The, 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 the heavens of form and formlessness are very, very pleasant. It's really nice. However, the heavens of formlessness, if a Buddha came, you would not know. You're kind of cut off from hearing the Dharma. And then the problem is when you fall, you tend to fall pretty hard. Because you've been having all the, you haven't had to think about, you know, groceries and you haven't had, for, for, you know, for aeons and aeons, you've been just you know, feeding on rapture. And all of a sudden you have to come back to the human realm, or worse, where you have to work for a living, you have to deal with people and all this other stuff. So it's, it's good for a while, but it's not the end, because you have to come back again and again and again. That's the, that's the drawback. My teacher had some students who were 
extremely difficult people. He, you know, he could never please them. Nobody could please them. And he made the comment one time. He said, "Yeah, they were, they were lived up in heaven recently. <laughs> they lived in heaven recently, and they got used to it. <laughs> so that's the problem. When you fall, you fall hard. Okay. okay, we really do have to break for lunch. Otherwise, the monks are going to starve." <laughs>